Yeah, Easter a year ago, the Easter, that Easter didn't feel like Easter, did it? I remember exactly what I was doing. I was standing on the same platform speaking to an almost empty room. I think we had maybe 10 or so musicians. And it was one of the first services that we had once COVID had come and, and we weren't able to meet together. I was still trying to figure out like how to preach to a video camera, which is extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, and maybe you can remember exactly what you were doing last Easter. Little did we know that that was just the beginning of it. I mean, that was really at the, the front end of it. And what happened was this kind of indescribably horrible year that would follow. Tim Keller, in his latest book, it is entitled um, Hope in Times of Fear. It's his latest book on the resurrection, and I'm going to be drawing on it pretty heavily today. He asked an important question. So he ended up getting uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about that diagnosis, it's usually very, very bleak. And he had already been under contract to write a book on for, the, for Easter and the resurrection. And he said, I really had to ask myself whether or not I could take my own medicine, the own medicine that I was putting down in, in my book, because you know, I, I had a taste of my own mortality more than ever before. Hope in times of fear. He asked this important question. I want you to ask, answer, uh, ask it with me as well. How do we recover hope? How do we recover hope? And not merely hope on an individual level, but on a bigger, broader societal level. Um, you know, whether you feel better or worse this Easter, you're presumably feeling much better. Nearly every one of us is concerned about the long-term future of things. And this, these concerns started long before the p- pandemic began. If you look back and, and you see when they would, would go out and survey parents and ask simply the question, are your kids going to have a better future than you did? Overwhelmingly in America, the answer was no. And then they survey Gen Z or Gen X, I guess it would be Gen Z and millennials. Are you going to have greater opportunities to be married, have children, own a home? Is your future going to be better than your parents? And they're like, hard no, no. And so while we, we all long for everything to return to normal, don't we? The reality is that normal wasn't even all that good to, be, to begin with. Things were already starting to unravel on the broader you know, cultural, societal level. And, and COVID just made it worse. That's why today, if you listen carefully, there is tremendous cultural pessimism out there. And I'd suggest that it goes far deeper than pessimism. There is actually a culture-wide loss of hope. Very few people even talk about hope anymore. Where is hope going to come from? It's very striking. If you go back and read the sermons or the lectures of Martin Luther King Jr., he was always talking about hope. Yet it was a hope that was centered in God. There was this like hope that God would do something in human history to heal our racial divisions. He's always talking about hope in God. Today, if somebody even does talk about hope, you know it's not a hope in God. I mean, God is not real to us. He's not part of, of anything in the societal or national conversation. And instead, then, what are people putting their hope in? They're putting their hope in their politics, aren't they? And we've never seen a more politicized America, at least certainly not as long as I've been around. And that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Like, how, how does anybody believe that if my political tribe wins decisively, 
That's our hope for tomorrow. (laughs) That's our societal hope. No, I mean, if anything, that is the most short-lived hope you could ever ask for. It completely depends upon your tribe being in political ascendancy. As soon as the other guys win, then there there goes all your hope. They're just going to erase it all. And there's no way that societal hope could come from politics. Another thing that people hope in, I think they hope in science and technology. And we're all startled by the advances of science and technology over the last, say, five decades. I mean, we put a man on the moon. Come on, that's crazy. I guess that would have been more than five decades ago, but um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful what we've done with science and technology, but those are only as good as the people who are using them, right? And doesn't history show us how often science and technology can be used, can and will be used against you? Sure, science may have given us the vaccine and done so in record time, but there are a lot of people out there who believe that science also gave us the virus to begin with. It's disputed, but that that it may have, you know, originated in a laboratory. And if if COVID has taught us anything about humanity, it's that we are really warped. We are we are turned in on ourselves and who we really care about. I mean, just look how we hoarded paper products and hand sanitizer, right? Who we really care about is me and my tribe. And so again, I ask you, where is societal hope going to come from? Is it even possible? And of course, I'm a Christian pastor. I'm going to say something uh, about Jesus and the resurrection. But I really believe this is a place to start. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter says that it's possible to get a living hope, um, a, an energizing fire that burns deep inside of you that is implanted there by this other ca- uh, character, the Holy Spirit, and it is connected to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just simply to talk to you about Christianity's resources for hope. Because I, I really do believe that Christianity, it provides, real Christianity provides really better resources for even society-wide hope than any of the, of the other alternatives out there. And so we're going to talk about what it would mean um, to understand this hope, to get this hope. I could say to you as Christians, because the majority of us here are believers, if we responded to this unique, unstable moment in our nation's history, in our world's history, with a living hope, imagine how weird we would look. Like, if we responded to it, not the way the rest of the world is, with more vitriol, with more anger, with more tribalism, with more fear, but if we responded to it in a Christian way, imagine how crazy weird that would be. And that's what we must do. Now, I wish I had more time in the sermon to talk about all the ways that hope will make a difference. And I realized as I was writing it that uh, the sermon was way too long to begin with. So um, I'm going to preach another sermon in two weeks, connecting the hope and the changes that happen when you connect the cross with the resurrection of Jesus. And so, yeah, just I'll do that in a couple of weeks. But today I want to give you three points. Number one, the hope is historical. Number two, the hope is futural. 
Yes, I made up a word. And number three, the hope is personal. The hope is historical. Some of you are here today and you don't believe or you don't fully believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And part of my desire is that through the course of the sermon, I might be able to move you at least a few steps closer to believing in Jesus. I know that a single sermon is probably not going to do that. But if I can move you one step closer, um, I would consider that a, a massive win. And one of the ways I try to do that is I really try to consider what it would be to be sitting in your seat or to be standing or walking in your shoes. If I was not a believing man, would I find the resurrection of Jesus Christ believable? Is it credible? And when I wrestled with that question this week, I thought uh, the answer I came up with is it would be hard for me to believe. It really would. I am totally a, a skeptic by nature. Um, I do not believe in wide-scale conspiracy theories. Like, I don't even believe, if you basically tell a secret you don't want other people to know, if you tell it to, like, more than three people, it's going to get out. <laughs> so the idea that there's this, like, grand cabal on, the, on a worldwide level that we're able to keep these secrets, um, you know, the Illuminati's in charge, I'm like, forget it. Um, somebody would spill the beans. So I'm totally anti-conspiracy theory. I'm totally skeptical of any super out-of-the-ordinary theory like resurrecting a man from the dead. Um, Believing that would have to pass through a very thick skepticism filter for me. Um, I tend towards simple solutions. And maybe you're like me. Um, Rather than give you the typical Easter sermon of like, here's the 15 reasons why you should believe in the historical plausibility of the resurrection, I'm only going to give you one. And the one, I'll give it to you right now, and it's not a slam dunk, but I think it's one, it's one that if you just kind of consider it, it, it's worth, it'll give you pause. It'll make you think, hmm. And really for the rest of the sermon, what I hope is even if you don't believe, would you just have an an open mind that says, if it were true, what are the implications? Because what I would suggest, if you listen to me carefully today, even if you don't believe, after hearing what I have to say, you should want it to be true. You really should at least be wanting it to be true. But here's the one argument, the only one I'm going to give you. If you were a Jew in the first century and you wanted to make up a story, fabricate a story about a Jewish rabbi who was brutally murdered, and all the historians agree, he, he, did, he was brutally tortured. If you want to fabricate a story that's going to appeal to your listeners, they only had two, two categories for resurrection at the time. Number one, a resurrected body would be this bright, glowing, dazzling figure when they came back to life. Does that make sense? Just as, you know, full of glory and transcendent beauty. That's a resurrected body. That was one category they had. Category number two is it would just be like a resuscitated corpse. There would be a complete one-to-one correlation between the body that died and this new body. It would just be like, hey, they came back to life. What's strange about the, the gospel accounts of the resurrected body of Jesus is it's neither. It's neither. When Jesus appears to eyewitnesses, the most, the, the most common way they respond to meeting him is they don't recognize him at first. They're like, hmm, I, I feel like I kind of know you, but I, I, I don't really know you. They don't recognize him at first until later when they do. The best analogy that I could give for this is if you, let's say you had a childhood friend 
when you were teenagers or you were really close, then that friend moved to another part of the country. You never saw him again. Uh, I had that happen. Brandon Cooper was a teenage friend of mine in Phoenix, Arizona. He moved to uh, South Carolina. Uh, I still haven't seen Brandon in, I guess that would be, I don't know, 35 years. But if I was walking along the street one day in Charleston and I happened to pass this guy and I did a double take and I'm like, something strange about you. I kind of know you. And we start talking, and then I would realize, whoa, it's you. That is how the resurrection appearances of Jesus is most often described in the Gospels. It's, it's, whoa, it's you. His resurrected body is similar to his former body in that it still has all of the, the wounds that he suffered. He still has the nail marks from his crucifixion in his hands. But it's so strangely different that they don't recognize him at first. And my point in telling you this is if you were going to fabricate a story that your, your cultural audience would find believable, this is really not the way to do it. Now, does that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? No. But when you have about a dozen of these and you put them all together, and you start to really dive into them, and there really are about a dozen of these, it makes you, I don't know, stroke your chin and just think, it could be, maybe, maybe, maybe it is true. Another thing when I talk to people not very familiar with Christianity um, is their perception of Easter, they think, well, the reason you have this Easter story is the primary take home is, oh, there's an afterlife. Oh, how comforting. Oh, when I die, uh, I'll go to heaven. That's how Easter is normally interpreted. And in fact, probably in the majority of churches in America today, that's the message that they're hearing. What I want you to hear is the story is so much more interesting than that. Which leads me to point number two. The hope is futural. Literature, maybe you uh, have taken, or, or you know, you might be in high school or college right now, and you're taking um, English literature or American literature, you find that literature is filled with these stories, a certain kind of story, a story of a king who would lead us into a golden age. So the Robin Hood legend, for instance. I mean, Robin Hood is, is basically about holding out in Sher- Sherwood Forest until the king comes who is compassionate and who cares for the poor and who is just. Wait till he arrives. Um, do a little bit of uh, resistance there in the forest. Wait till he arrives, till he knocks off the sheriff of Nottingham, right? But there's a king who's going to come. Likewise, the King Arthur legend It's based on the hope that that one shining moment in Camelot will finally return. The inscription on King Arthur's tomb reads this. Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. Uh, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, the return of the king. I mean, it's it's in all of our literature. It's It's in, I think, a lot of our movies. Do you know what's odd about these legends? The actual record of kings in history is abysmal. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a record of tyranny and slavery and, uh, and, uh, you know, crushing um, selfishness. If you notice, there are hardly any kingdoms in the world today. They've all been toppled by democracies, the idea that at least a democracy will give us a check and balance against tyranny. And yet, these longings for a true king, these themes still populate our, our songs, 
our books and our movies, our blockbuster summer movies year after year. What most people don't realize is it originates in the Bible, particularly in the Hebrew prophets. According to the Bible story, the world that God made was a world, it was a paradise. It was a world that was just good, that was full of harmony and peace and unity. And it gets destroyed by this serpentine evil that comes in to the world. And from it, then all of the horrible things emanate. The war and crime and racism and poverty and famine and plague and aging and death. All of those are the result of this great plunge into disintegration and darkness. The way the Bible describes it is the world unraveled. If you've ever seen... um, say, a ball of yarn at the top of a long staircase, roll down the stairs, it begins to unravel. And that is how the Bible describes uh, what happened to us, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship to the environment. It all began to unravel. But the Hebrew prophets insisted that one day a king, they called him Messiah, would come. He would come to earth and he would undo this. And the name of this king is the name that we sing about on Christmas in the Hallelujah Chorus. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is the king who is to come. Psalm 72, if you go to the Psalter, the psalm is uh, a description of the reign of this king. Like, what will this king's reign bring to complete the healing of creation? And it says his reign will inaugurate a world where justice dwells, where every tear will be wiped away, a world in which death and decay and destruction are banished forever. There are lots of poetical and lyrical ways the Bible describes this. Isaiah, the prophet, says he prophesies that the wolf will lie down with the lamb, hmm, and the child will play beside the adder's nest. You know, the Bible is full of these, these poetic expressions of how the world will be renewed, it will be reborn. And what Christians don't understand, what hardly anybody seems to understand, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a feel-good story of how after winter comes spring. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the renewal of the world. It is that world that has been promised, that we all long for, that we all hope for, that we all anticipate. That world that has just been an echo in all of our books and our stories. That world has come into this one. That is the resurrection. And it may sound like, I don't know, at first it may sound like wishful thinking. But what it actually looks like is resurrection. And so whatever you may have heard about Christianity or whatever you like have seen on the TV about Christianity, I hope you'll pay no attention to whatever you see on the TV about Christianity. But this is our most fundamental belief. The resurrection is stage one of the king and his kingdom coming into the world to restore and to heal all things. Amen? That's what, it mean, that's what it means to fundamentally believe in the resurrection. Stage one of the king and his kingdom coming into the world to restore and heal all things. And I got to believe that if that was the message preached more on Sunday, on Easter Sundays, rather than, you know, when you die, you go to heaven. Um, I got to think that that would capture at least some people's attention. Because that's a great story. 
It's a, that is a bigger story, a more wonderful story. It's, um, it's, it's a story that is, that is real. And I don't want to downplay our own individual death. I mean, we, it's one thing theoretically to, to know that you can die at any moment. It's another thing when you have brushes with death. And uh, maybe that happened to some of us. Um, certainly, we've had to have thought about our mortality a whole lot more over the last 365 days than we have in recent times. But, it, but even an individual's death and by God's grace, their resurrection, you have to understand, it's, that's just a small part in this much grander, more beautiful, wonderful story. And I really believe that every human being needs, needs to be connected to, participate in a story that is bigger than their own story. A story that makes sense of the world. A story that, ha- that makes sense of past and present and future. A story that gives resources for interpreting. Um, and a story that's just simply bigger than your own story. And that is a fact um, what the Bible provides. Do you want to see a cool way how it's described um, to us on Easter morning? Matthew 28, verse 1 through 6 in your bulletin. I included this narration of how on Easter morning, the angel comes and rolls the stone away for the women who come to the tomb. The stone would have looked very similar to what's on the front of your bulletin. It would have been circular. It would have weighed like a ton, very heavy. They would be, it would roll into a decline right in front of the opening of the tomb so that if you got a few, say, soldiers, they could push it that way. But you couldn't, if this makes sense, you can't push it out from the inside. I mean, you couldn't move it at all. And we read this, that now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold... There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, notice, this is very important. Notice what it doesn't say next. It does not say, and then Jesus walked out of the tomb. Oh, no. (laughs) It does not say the stone was rolled back and Jesus walked out of the tomb. it, It implies that Elvis had already left the building. (laughs) He's gone. He gone. He's not there. He's already gone. One of the really strange features of his resurrection body is it's able to pass through. And I don't understand this happens, but pass through solid objects. So later on in that day, when the disciples are meeting in the upper room, he, he walks through a closed wooden door. Here, he walks through a very thick a thick, thick piece of stone. We have, maybe you have, I know that I kind of did, this misperception that on Easter morning, Jesus is resurrected and he's like, can somebody let me out? <laughs> and the angel comes down and is like, all right, let's, let's let you out. No, he's already gone. In fact, verse seven, it says, he tell, the angel says to the, to the women, he's already headed up to Galilee. If you hurry, you might be able to, to reach him. Do you realize what this means? The stone wasn't rolled away to let him out. The stone was rolled away to let us in. It was. Um, It was to let you and me and all the world in to see that the old was gone. That the death, decay, injustice, 
of a crucified man in a rotting corpse is no longer contained in those grave clothes. It's gone. The old world has passed away. The new world has come. The future has broken into the present. The new world has come. No other religion will tell you that. Study all the religions you want to. None of the religions of the world even believe that. No one believes that the future world can come into human history, except for this one. And granted, it only comes partially. It's only a partial um, entry, but it's a real one. Point number three, the last point, the hope is personal. Let me explain another way how the future comes into the present. Anybody out here, um, out there, here, there, wherever, are you a daydreamer? Do you like to daydream? I'm a huge daydreamer. Thursday was opening day of Major League Baseball season. I can't tell you how many daydreams I've had of being the center field, uh, center fielder on opening day, you know, that's where a lot of my um, daydreams go, to playing professional baseball. But I also have other guy daydreams, and I bet you there's at least one other guy who has done this before. Guys, have you ever dreamt about taking a piece of modern military technology, say like a bunch of machine guns, or a night vision goggles, Jim, or an Abrams tank, and time warping modern military technology back to a future battle, like say back to the Revolutionary War. Anybody ever done that? Like how cool would that be? To Maybe not. <laughs> but I have. I have. Maybe on a more benevolent level, like take penicillin back to the Middle Ages or something. I don't know. But I, my, my brain does that. I daydream about taking something that was part of the future back into the past. That is what Peter is describing of a sort. He says... That when you become a Christian, the spirit that will renew all of the world at the end of time is the spirit that comes and dwells inside of you. Verse 3, let's look at it again. Um, The same spirit that's going to renew the world at the end of the time um, comes according to his great mercy. God has caused us to be born again. It creates a new birth inside of you. It's one thing to be born physically. It's quite another to be born spiritually. And that is what happens when you believe in Jesus and his resurrection. The same power that's going to renew the world comes into your life now through faith in Jesus Christ. A resurrection happens in your soul and it produces a living hope. There are two kinds of hope, at least in the English language. There is an I hope so hope. If I'm diagnosed with cancer, I hope that my my docs are competent, and they know how best to treat me. I hope that the chemo treatments end up sending the cancer into remission. There is an I hope so hope, an uncertain but wishful hope. The word the Bible usually gives to describe hope is simply a profound certainty, a certain hope that is created by the Spirit and that is part of the new birth. It is possible to have a certain Hope, an energizing fire burning inside of you. A fire from the future into the present. And I can tell you this, the hope makes such a difference. Because if you change somebody's hope, you end up changing their lives. And that's not just true of, uh, of say, you know, a, a kid who, who's grown up in the inner city. If you change their hope, you end up changing their lives. That's, that is true of every single one of us. 
Let me give you an example. Through the years, I have counseled a lot of Christian couples, and there's a pattern that has emerged that I see, and it's not I don't want to suggest to you that these are inflexible gender roles. They always have to work this way. It just happens that this is how I have often um, witnessed it. That when a couple comes into my office and they're experiencing financial struggles, and the husband, maybe his career is struggling quite a bit, uh, the husband in that moment is like, my world is crumbling to the ground, while the wife is like, oh, honey, just trust in Jesus. (laughs) But then what happens is if there's a problem with the children, if one of the kids is, is going off the rails, if the kid's struggling, then it's the wife's life. You know, the end of the world has come. And the husband is saying, like, well, what about that trust in Jesus thing? <laughs> there's a reversal. Hey, what's happening? It's not that they both don't love the kids. They do. It's not that they both don't care about money and career. They do. But in those instances... You know, the wife has built her significance and security on her children. Her hope for life is, will my children turn out okay? And the husband has built his, his identity and his career. And his hope in life is, will I be a success? And again, these are not fixed roles. I mean, a wife can feel that way about her career. A dad can feel that way about his sons and daughters. But they both need a change in hope, don't they? And whether you know this or not about yourself, your life is profoundly set on what your hopes, um, where your hopes lie. Like we are tremendously hope-dependent people. And that's why if you can change a person's hope, you can change everything about their lives. Uh, again, I look forward to preaching more about that in a couple of weeks, uh, talking about the cross and resurrection, uh, how hope changes our, um, how, what hope does for our sense of of justice, what hope does for our sense of suffering, you know, all of that. But to re- get back to First Peter 3, or 1, 3, guess what happens when your hope is based on a living certainty? The original Christians believed that history was not moving just to an end, but to something that was wonderfully good and certain. And because of that, um, they were rock solid during times of national instability. If you go back and look... When the plagues hit the world, when pandemics hit the ancient world, do you know who are the people who stayed in the city to care for the poor? It was the Christians. When everybody else was leaving, it was the Christians who said, I can, I can risk everything to care for them. Because if that future world is certain, then that is the world I should be working for today. The hope changes everything. And I'm not sure that the dominant philosophy of our world today, secularism, is able to, pr- to promote that very thing. What do I mean by that? Secularism, and I'm almost done if I'm losing you, so secularism basically maintains that there is no God, there is no spirit world, all is matter, all is just materialism in the universe. When you die, you're just fertilizer, and eventually human civilization is going to disappear without a trace. Now, on one hand, secularism tells us that we should fight, for, fight against injustice and for racism, against racism. On the other hand, secularism tells us there's no such thing as moral absolutes. All morality is is a power play by whoever's in charge at the moment. It's determined by whoever has power. Yet secularism has this weird uh, optimistic belief in humanity that people will just get magically better and everybody will, you know, John Lennon realize 
We just need peace and love. That's all that we need. Like, where do you, where do you get that from? Um, when in secularism, the ultimate destiny of society is oblivion. It is. Eventually, the sun burns out, the earth turns into an ice world, and everything goes to nothing. I genuinely don't understand how that set of beliefs can produce hope in the world today. Christian hope is so different, isn't it? It's a hope, it's a hope in a certain future that has come to actually reside inside of you. And yes, absolutely we should fight against racism and injustice, but why should we do that? Because that is part of the future world. I, when I have conversations with people, it's like, and they praise Martin Luther King Jr. as, as, they, as they ought to. What I, I don't think they realize that MLK would not have been MLK if he didn't have a Christian hope. Like there is no MLK if he is a secularist. There is no MLK if there is simply a secular hope. Um, it, you have to have this kind of story and worldview to produce that kind of activism in the world. And don't mistake me, I'm not pointing the finger at the other guy and saying, you know, he's what's wrong with the world. I'm just saying that his explanation for the way things are and the way things should be is not a very good explanation. No, I mean, the, the hope requires the admission that if anything, the problem with the world is you and me. <laughs> you know, the problem is looking, is looking back at me in the mirror. Remember what Jesus taught what God wants from us is simply to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor with as much tenacity, to care for our neighbor's good with as much tenacity as we care for our own good, to love our neighbor as ourselves. You and I have never done that for a single day of our lives, not perfectly, not completely. <laughs> and that is what the Bible calls sin. It's what Jesus came to save us from, the, the, the abject selfishness of our human nature. You may realize that there are some gifts that can't be received without some ugly admissions about yourself. So as an example, um, imagine an older man who is complaining that everybody else is mumbling. He can't hear them very well. The problem is everybody else is mumbling under their voice. Only no, the problem is that your ears are bad. So for his birthday, his wife goes out and gets one of those top-of-the-line hearing aids. Just the best that money can buy. But when he opens the package and he asks how much were these, she gives him the total and he says, well, that's too much. And he says, I want to return these to the store. But she replies, no, honey, these are the very best. And, and I wanted to give you the very best. Please accept this as a gift. In order for him to accept that gift, he has to do something that is very hard for men to do. And that is to admit that like, I'm an old codger. And the problem is with me. The problem is I cannot hear. There's no way to receive some gifts without seeing yourself in a negative light. And the gospel is the ultimate gift that requires such a radical admission. Like you have to have the humility to say, I have not been committed to the restoration of this world as I ought to. Absolutely not. My life too often revolves around me around myself and my kids and my wife and my career and my comfort. I'm very happy to build my own little kingdom. In fact, if I was being honest, I would prefer to be God. 
I think I could do a better job than he could. No, but life revolves around me. The king and his kingdom comes into this world to save you, not only from that, but to give you a greater purpose than that. Because there, friends, there is something so much more important to be done in this world than just to live for yourself, to live after the American dream. I'll conclude with this. Later in Peter's letter in verse 10, he has these words to the church. And they read, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the predicted sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow the gospel that has been preached to you, even angels long to look into these things. What is the gospel that the prophets were looking for and the apostles preached? It was the suffering of the Messiah for our sins. He came in weakness, not in triumph, to suffer. And the glories of the Messiah that were to come after his resurrection. And the most interesting part of what Peter writes there is those words, and angels long to look into these things. You think about angels. Angels have been around for what? How many years? A thousand years? A million years? A billion years? They've kind of seen it all if you've been around that long. <laughs> and yet there is something Peter says that even the angels never get tired of thinking about. It is the good news of what Jesus did for humanity and the future glory of what he will do for the world. And if you think, you know, if you spend all your time reading the same news article over and over and over and over again, you would think that you would get a little bit bored, but oh no, not the angels. <laughs> he uses a very strong word. He says angels long, long to see these things. It's like their tongues are hanging out of their mouth. They're panting in earnestness. They long to see these things. Where is hope going to come from? Even the angels know. It's going to come from someone who atones for sin and rises from the dead. It's going to come from someone who gives us a piece of the future, the future spirit. And if there's, if there's two words, you walk away from the sermon, in addition to the word hope. But if there are two words that you remember, it, it would be these. New creation. It's going to come from someone who has brought about the new creation. Hope from the world can start here in that certain and magnificent future. Amen.